There's a weightiness, I know, to the crucifixion, and I hope you uh, forgive me if I get a little emotional, too. If Mike can get off from having to sing when he gets emotional, I get off from <laughs> preaching. So, God, we are so thankful. I'm so thankful, God. What you went through. Just so I could be healed. To be set free. To have a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am forever grateful, God. I pray, Father, that the spirit of adoption continue to have its work in our hearts. By it, we cry, Abba, Father. We are your sons and daughters. We love you. We love you. We love you. You know, <clears throat> Jesus, neither Jesus nor the 11 apostles or Paul asked people to simply believe the message that they had proclaimed. As a matter of fact, if we listen to the words of Jesus in chapter 10 of John, he says, if, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Neither Jesus nor the early church tried to argue anyone into the faith. They told the truth and then they let people see the power of God at work. Reaching the lost, it was a genuine partnership. It was humans working with God. And as they went out with the message of Jesus, God accompanied them by performing signs and wonders to confirm his word. Jesus established this model of ministry and his apostles, they continued where he left off. In fact, that model was so effective that Christianity exploded in numbers. Do you realize that it only took 300 years for uh, Christianity to become the official religion of the Roman Empire? But unfortunately, its success also, in some ways, became its undoing. As the political power of the church grew, it developed rigid structures, the gospel was starting to get lost. Unfortunately, signs and wonders almost ceased. And now people are joining the church for political and financial benefits. And the passion to win the lost was diminishing. And as time went on, it became virtually unrecognizable from the revolution that Jesus began. Jesus started a movement that was based on radical discipleship and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Unfortunately, what emerged eventually was a loveless and powerless religion. And the damage was done. And it was so severe that we are still living in its repercussions. But thank God we still have the Bible. In fact, now more than any time in history, we can look to the Bible. We can go back and we can listen to the words of Jesus. We can hear him speak again. We can read firsthand reports of what he did. We can, we can read and watch the first wave of believers that were fresh from his hands carrying the gospel into the world. So if any one of us is willing to set aside the confusion and the misunderstanding of what we've inherited for the past two millennia, we can return to the faith that Jesus started and to the power that he promised would accompany us. So today I want to talk about signs, wonders, and resurrection. We've been in the book of Romans and I'm going to start there today. Verse 14, Paul says, I myself, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace that's been given to me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, a little background here. As, the end of, as, as we're coming to the end of this letter to the Romans, as it draws near the end, Paul is aware that at times he has spoken to these Roman believers using a very strong and authoritative tone. Now, if this were Corinth or Ephesus, it would be very understandable why he would speak that way because of his relationship of leadership over those churches. That would have given him the right to admonish and correct his readers. But his relationship with Rome, it was a little different. He had never been to Rome. He'd never visited the city. So he wants to assure his readers that the boldness that he's got in his, his writing, it's not a sign of disrespect. In fact, his opinion of them is very high. It's just the opposite. He regards them highly. He thinks of them as mature in character, which is why he uses the term full of goodness. He thinks of them as being well-educated, which is why he said, having been filled with all knowledge. And he knows that they are gifted with leaders who are quite capable of correcting any who might need it. That's why he said, you're able to instruct one another. So Paul had respect for these Christians in Rome, and he wanted to make sure they knew it here in verses 14 through 16. 
So that's some background. But what I want to focus on is I want to look at verses 17 through 19, and specifically 19. Again, in 17, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. To turn, to return to the religion that Jesus truly started. We've got to realize that it's, it's not only a talking and telling faith. But it's also a doing and seeing faith. And Paul uses a couple of words that we need to very much understand. He says, with signs and wonders that I display the gospel. Now, the definitions of these two words, number one, a sign, is any kind of a miracle or miraculous moment that teaches some kind of spiritual truth. And a wonder is any kind of miraculous event or a miracle that shakes our formerly held beliefs about a situation and it forces us to listen to something new. Jesus did that over and over. Whoa, what is this man saying? Something new. Does the world need to hear something new? Well, if we're going to be faithful to the gospel like Paul, he said he was faithful to the gospel. If we're going to be faithful like he is, we've got to reintroduce and strengthen the supernatural reality of the gospel. Again, Jesus is the standard. Jesus set the standard for how this thing is supposed to work. In fact, he says in John 2, 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Matthew 8 says that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. John 11, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him going on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice, they weren't worried about the message. They weren't worried about the talk, talk. There are all kinds of crazy people saying stuff about God. They were worried about were the signs that showed what he said was true. They weren't worried about the message. They were worried about that that message has got some backup It's all right here. And then what did Jesus do? Well, he took this and he's passed it on to his apostles. He said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, 
because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In John 20, he said to them, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. Meaning the same manner in which I did my work, you're going to do it in the same manner too. As I was sent, so are you going to be sent. And we know in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, but you will receive power. Everyone say power. power. Everyone say power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And so he passed this on to his apostles. And then what did the apostles do? What happened? They did it. The apostles, they clearly heard what Jesus said. And the same message that they received and the same manner that they uh, executed it, they've passed it on to us. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you really want to observe this, if you really want to see how this was being carried out by the first Christians, I just encourage you to go read uh, the story of Philip in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, when he was in Samaria. At this, and, and in that story, we have Saul, who uh, becomes Paul, but this is before he became Paul. He was called Saul. And so Saul, before he was Paul, had just approved the killing of Stephen. And the church started to freak out and scatter. And so now Philip is off to Samaria, and signs were working through him. And eventually, Saul, he finally gets converted because of his own miraculous encounter with the Lord. Saul gets saved, and he now becomes Paul. And you can read about all of the cool, how he did it in Acts 19, verses 8 through 20, when he's in Ephesus. You know, when Paul would go to, to a town, he would start with a synagogue. And he would go into the synagogue and he would talk and teach as, and reach as many of the Jews as he could possible. And then when the resistance started to harden against him, he would leave and he would take all of the believing Jews with him. And then he would start ministering to the Gentiles in the community. Paul preached the gospel, and he preached a gospel that actually changed hearts. It actually changed the hearts of an individual. God came upon them, and he came into them in power. Paul ministered in such power that people could see God at work. His preaching, it was confirmed by God. He wasn't working alone. He was working with God. Who wants a job like that? Well, where did the power go? Well, much of it was lost over the course of church history. Things like ignorance, Greek philosophy, 
corrupt and greedy clergy, a fusing or a blending of different belief systems with Christianity and just old-fashioned, plain old heresy. They all eroded the faith that Jesus had started. And when, when that happened, the church hardened into a powerful political institution. As Christianity was introduced to our non-Jewish thinking minds, it was turned into a philosophy. We ignored the Old Testament and started guessing at what the Jewish writers of the New Testament were saying. We were embarrassed eventually by the powerlessness of our own lives, and so we invented an explanation to protect our pride. What we said is God stopped working in power when the last apostles died. That's where it went. You know, even today, there are many who continue to preach an inadequate gospel that produces churchgoers who just merely modify their behavior to fit in instead of truly being transformed. They end up remaining unloving, powerless. You know, sadly, in even a lot of Pentecostal and Spirit-filled churches like ours, very few are actually baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to everyone who repents and believes. But you've got to receive it. And then once we, we receive it, we've got to learn then how to walk in the Spirit. You know, it's in our, our instant gratification culture. We, we're no longer being taught how to wait on the Lord. To let His power come upon us in fresh new ways. Few of us are willing to be pioneers and learn by trial and error. You know, growing in the things of the Spirit demands a lot of patience and a great amount of humility. Everyone say patience and humility. You know, what gets in the way of us growing in the Spirit are things like our fragile egos, which means I get angry if I pray and nothing happens. I doubt when our fragile faith gets touched and we doubt God then when I pray and nothing happens. Those are two obstacles we've got to deal with. And you know what? Ministering in the Spirit, it is, it's hard work. There's a lot of hours that are invested in discerning what God is doing and then stepping out in faith. There's spiritual opposition. <laughs> I mean, you think the enemy wants us moving in power? No. And, and honestly, if love is not your motivation for ministering in the Spirit, you're not going to stick with it very long. Love is the only reason a believer will do this for a lifetime. That's it. There is no other area of ministry that requires more maturity. You see, because it's, it's a very subtle line that divides the flesh and the spirit. 
person has to be constantly discerning themselves. And, and then they've got to be humble enough to stop the instant they realize they have shifted out of the spirit and into the flesh. It requires integrity. We have to have a determination that I will only speak his word, not my own. I will only do what he leads me to do and nothing more and nothing less. And to have this kind of ministry in a church, it requires pastoral leadership to be mature and to be courageous. Church leaders have to be persistently uh, in, uh, avoiding and correcting some of the inevitable mistakes that come. Things like becoming proud when God uses us. There's this unholy pressure at times to produce more and bigger miracles. We love to develop formulas and rigid structures, rigid doctrines. But there is still widespread teaching in the body of Christ against ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people have been taught since they were children that these things are not for today. What are we going to do? What must we do? Number one, I think we've got to stop listening to man-made arguments. Man-made arguments against the power of God. It's got to end. I think we've also got to read the word of God honestly. We've got to take off the filter. We've got to take off our prejudices. We've got to take off the fear. And we have to read the Bible honestly. I think we've got to ask God to be our teacher in these things. Have you ever told God, I want everything you have for me? When was the last time you prayed that prayer? If you did once before. I want everything you have for me. Teach me in your ways, God. I think it is essential that we be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, you do not have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to make it to heaven. Let me be clear. You have the indwelling presence of God in you when you confess Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I believe with my heart and my mouth said it out loud to someone else. You are born again. That's it. Yeah. But there is a baptism that is another gift from heaven. Yes. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when that gift comes, your life turns upside down yes. for heaven. So we've got to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I think we've got to look to people who are doing this well and who are willing to teach us. And what's the last part? Correct us. Remember the fragile ego? It doesn't work. We have to hear, hey, brother, that was uh, not the Lord. Good try. It wasn't God. I think we've got to have some courage and step out and just start trying. 
We've got to expect to fail. But keep trying. Keep trying. Keep trusting. Keep going after it until we learn. That's how you learn. There are no educational models that don't have failure a part of it. None. Not in school, not in high school, not in college, not in post-college. There are no educational moments where you don't get to fail a little bit. That's how we learn. And we have emphasized here and will continue to emphasize new covenant is a safe place to learn and grow in the spirit. If you'll have the faith to step out, we'll have the faith to love you through it. Now let's go back to Paul for just a moment. Why was Paul so effective? Because, and I asked that question because apparently Paul was not impressive to look at or listen to. It's in the Bible. In fact, those who criticize him, they said in 2 Corinthians 10.10, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. I mean, how'd you like to be introduced that way? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, he's hard to look at. He's, uh, he's hard on the eyes. Small children run when he comes in the room. He can barely put two words together in a sentence when he's standing in front of a crowd, but wow, his books are awesome. Everybody welcome Top Rebel. Oh. Why was he so effective? It was because he preached a gospel that had power. And it pierced hearts. When people believed that message, they were actually transformed. They had a real encounter with God for themselves. God used him in miraculous ways that they could not ignore. I can't ignore what's going on, what I'm seeing. And Paul was bold. He was relentless. He would not quit. Amen. And I realize that today in the Western world can feel like we're losing the battle. You know, there are, there are a few county, counties in the U.S. where the number of believers are growing as a percentage of the population. People are still interested in God. They're just not interested in religion. Our, our society, our, our, our cities, our towns, our states, they can be reached, but not as bu- business as usual. We've got to go back to the power of the Holy Spirit and let God work through us by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit of God. This is the challenge that is on us right now. Are we willing to let God use us like that? I say yes. God, I want everything you have. You know, today, if we haven't said it enough, is Easter. It is the most special day of the year for those of us who are Christ followers. 
and it is important to remember that everything I'm talking about today, everything Paul and the apostles did in the New Testament, everything we believe and do in Christianity, it hinges on one singular fact. And Paul says it perfectly in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then he says it again in 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Our entire life in Christianity is based on one singular supernatural power of God moment. The resurrection of Jesus. Yes. There is no other religion that has a leader who died in their human body and raised back to life. None. Christianity, listen, it's not true because it's the only way to eternity with God. It's not just the most logical religion. It's not true because it's the most logical. It's not true because it's the nicest religion. It's not true because it's the most helpful religion. It's true because Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, was raised from the dead, and he still lives today. And he is the only way to eternity with God. That's why it's true. This is the greatest sign and wonder there ever be. Jesus raising from the dead. Even Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, he eventually died again. In fact, every person in the Bible who was raised from the dead, even by Jesus or the apostles, they all eventually died permanently. But Jesus was raised to life and he still lives today. That is a miracle of miracles. This is the ultimate sign and wonder. And I just want to briefly remind us of the supernatural power of God. Evidence of the historical fact of the resurrection. Number one, here's fact. The heavy stone that covered the entrance to the tomb was moved. You know, it says in Mark 16, 3, records the women as they're discussing on the way to the tomb. They're asking, who will roll away the stone for us to the entrance of the tomb? And Luke says that when they arrived, they actually found the stone already rolled away. Now, this would have been a very large, round stone that was placed into a groove in front of the tomb. And it would have taken several strong men to roll that stone out of that groove. And we know that the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, they would have not moved that stone, nor would they have allowed anyone else to do it. In fact, Matthew 28, 2 states that it was an angel of the Lord that moved the stone. And he did not do this so that Jesus could get out. You know, like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm alive. Let me out. Hey, is anyone out there? Can you hear me? They didn't do it to get, help Jesus out. It was so the witnesses could go in and, re, and see the resurrection. They could verify it, that it was empty. 
You know, years ago, there was an attorney, his name, uh, Frank Morrison, and he had set out to refute the evidence of the resurrection. And, you know, while he appreciated the, the good life of Jesus, he thought that the early followers had uh, attached the myth of the resurrection onto the story of Jesus. But as he examined the facts with his legal background and his training, he actually eventually wrote a best-selling book, Who Moved the Stone, in which he puts in that all the evidence for Christ's resurrection. So number one miracle, the stone was rolled. Number two, there's an empty tomb. The empty tomb is a sign and a wonder. If the tomb had not been empty when the apostles began preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Jewish leaders would have just marched right on down to the tomb and said, he's right here. Here's the body. And the disciples would have been laughed out of town. You know, those who deny the fact that the resurrection um, even happened, they've, they've got a lot of different ways they try to explain how there was an empty tomb, but none of them are plausible. For instance, uh, Jesus, his enemies could have came and maybe they stole his body. Well, that couldn't have been plausible because they had no motive to do that. And if they had... When the, when the apostles started preaching the gospel, all they would have done was just produce the body and said, eh, you're a liar. Surprise, you, you, you're a liar, and it would have been over. And again, if it was just the enemy, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. There was no way that body was going to go out. Well, maybe it was the Roman soldiers. Maybe they, they were the ones who took the body. Well, again, what motive would they have had? I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care about his new religion. In fact, if they had stolen the body, they would have probably been able to sell it to the Jewish leaders, right? For a lot of money. That didn't happen. Maybe it was the disciples who stole the body. This is the story that the Jewish leaders tried to come up with. But again, the Roman guards, they would have prevented this. I mean, these soldiers are not going to risk their lives, literally, for a bribe. I mean, if they had failed their job, dead. And the disciples, you know, they could have not have moved the heavy stone and stolen the body without the guards' knowledge or their permission. And besides, the disciples, they were too depressed. <laughs> they were confused. They were too fearful to even pull off such a daring grave robbery. If they had done so, it is inconceivable that they would have a, uh, they would have boldly preached the gospel. Especially if, you know, I mean, imagine they took the body and we're going to put on this, this ruse of the gospel. And then persecution hits. How long do you think they'd keep that ruse up to save their life? They'd have said, nope, sorry, just kidding. He didn't, no one's going to die for a lie. I believe the third fact is that there was an angelic witness. Luke tells us that when the women entered, there were two men in dazzling apparel who gently rebuked them for seeking the living one among the dead. And then the angel said, he's not here, but he's risen. 
And he went on to remind them of Jesus' prediction of that he would be crucified by sinful men and that he would rise again on the third day. And if there are any doubts to what this identity of these men are, Luke 24 says that they were angels. Some critics doubt the existence of angels, but they do that because they have a naturalistic bias. But they can't deny the testimony of several credible eyewitnesses to the event. This one's a very interesting fact for the proof of the resurrection. It's the actual doubting apostles. This is powerful evidence. The fact that the men who should have believed were the first uh, were were at first skeptics to the women when they had come and they had testified about the resurrection. Like the guys who should have had this together, they're like, eh, we don't believe you. I mean, if someone was making this story up, they would have not made the apostles look so skeptical and unbelieving. Who makes up a story like that and makes them look stupid? The apostles weren't even looking for a resurrection. Instead, they ridiculed the women who uh, they were, uh, you're out of touch with reality, ladies. In fact, Peter wanted to check it out for himself, right? So he ran to the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings. And, and Luke says that he marveled, but he was still not fully convinced. I mean, what could have changed these men into bold witnesses, willing to suffer persecution and death if it wasn't for the fact that they actually saw the risen Lord Jesus? The linen wrappings are proof. They're a sign. Peter and John saw them lying there, but Jesus' body was not inside them. If someone had stolen Jesus' body, they would have not waited to unwrap the linen and leave it there. What happened was Jesus' body passed through those grave clothes and left them lying there intact. The Bible tells us in John 20, and it tells us in Luke 24, that Jesus' resurrection body, it could actually be felt. He could eat and drink, but he could also still pass through closed doors. He could instantly appear or vanish from sight. But the fact that Peter and John, who were not expecting a resurrection, saw these linen wrappings in the tomb, that is evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And then we've got hundreds of eyewitness accounts to the resurrected Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, it talks about the numerous appearances of the risen Savior to the apostles and to hundreds. Hundreds. Said he appeared to 500 at one time. And the effect of that was so dramatic, it changed the lives of everyone who saw him. There is no way how to explain how the apostles were transformed from fearful and depressed and confused into bold witnesses ready to die for their message, except for the fact that he really was resurrected. There's no other way. The evidence piles up into a powerful mountain that cannot be ignored. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. It cannot be denied. Now, you may be thinking, 
the evidence is so convincing, why don't more people believe it? Well, the answer is people refuse to believe in the resurrection because it has moral implications that they don't want to face. If Jesus is risen, then he is the rightful Lord of all. It means he is the coming judge of all the earth. And it means that I have to turn from my sin and live under his lordship. It is because people don't want to turn from their sin. They refuse to believe in Jesus in spite of the overwhelming supernatural signs and wonders, miraculous evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. What I want to say today is that today is your day for a miracle. Today is your day that you can be born again. Today is the day that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Today, you can be freed from sickness and disease. And so at this time, I'm going to ask the altar teams to come up and the prophetic team to come up. Clayton, if you want to... I thank God for how he's moved through our worship today. But maybe you felt God moving in your heart and you didn't respond, but I'm giving you a chance right now to respond. So I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes for just a moment. Everybody just close your eyes. I just want you to ask the question to God, not yourself. Don't ask yourself. Ask God, is there anything I need to go up and get today? Do I need to go up there and get salvation? Do I need to be born again for the first time in my life? Do I need to go up and rededicate my life? Years ago, I, I said yes to God, but I've walked so far away, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. God, do you want me to go up and rededicate my life? Maybe you've wondered and thought about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you've been scared or confused. I want you to ask the Lord, Father, do you want me to go forward today? And get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're here, you've got some kind of sickness in your body, something that's not worked right for a long time. I want you to ask the Lord, God, do you want me to go forward and receive healing from my body? Maybe you're under mental torment. Maybe things like anxiety, panic attacks, depression. 
crippling your life. And you just need some release. Well, I want you to know the Prince of Peace is here. Shalom is what he wants to give you. I want you to close your eyes and ask the Lord, God, do you want me to go forward and get peace today? Father, we trust the Holy Spirit and His leadership in our life. We know that hearts are burning. We know that there are some who are ready to get saved. Some are ready to rededicate. Some are ready to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some to be healed in their body or their mind. So, Father, I pray right now that as we end this service, that those you are calling and you said, I want you to go forward and get prayed, would obey and go forward and get the prayer they need today. We know that there's nothing but love waiting for them up here. Nothing but peace. The power of God to move in their lives. So Father, I pray as we end this service today, that those who need to come forward would come forward, complete the work that you've done in them this day. So, Father, we thank you. We love you. We say thank you again for the salvation that comes through Jesus. So many gifts are just waiting for us to, to just for us to just grab, just to go up and take. I just see that. That's the picture I have in my heart right now. Are people coming forward to the altar and they're grabbing a gift, a wrapped gift. Here's a gift. You just see it. It's got your name on it. You just go for it and you get it. So I just, I just pray, Father, that we would all receive that which you have freely given through the powerful men in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.